So four things I want us to see this morning about what it looks like to live faithfully while we wait patiently. So here's your outline. Right? First, know God's plan. Second, obey God's precepts. Third, trust God's provision. And fourth, hope in God's promises. So I'll state that again. I think these four truths are going to help us live faithfully while we wait patiently in these sort of last days, the already but not yet, right? First, know God's plan. Second, obey God's precepts. Third, trust God's provision. Fourth, hope in God's promises. And if you still didn't get it, I'll just repeat as we go through. Okay, so first, Isaiah says we're to know God's plan. Know God's plan. So look down with me, Isaiah 56, verse 3. Isaiah 56, verse 3. Isaiah writes, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides these already gathered. So stopping right there, we see right at the outset God's concern for two types of people, right? For the foreigner and for the eunuch. Now, eunuchs, if you're unfamiliar, they were just males that at some point had been castrated. This would have been a common practice in a lot of pagan religions in the time. And given the associations of eunuchs with pagan worship, they were barred from entering into God's assembly. You can look at that, for example, in Deuteronomy 23.1. And yet, to such people, God promises that one day they will, in fact, be welcomed into his assembly. And though, he says, there's a play on words, though he says, your private parts have been cut off, in effect, as eunuchs, right? So no hope for family, right? Dry tree, no hope for offspring. They will yet be given, God says, an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So too, God says, I will welcome the foreigner. You know, Israel was prone, sadly, like many of us are today, kind of prone to a kind of ethnic prejudice. They prided themselves on being Jews, took great delight in being Jews. They tended to look down upon Gentiles, just all those who were not Jews, not, not like them. And yet here, again, like the eunuch, we read that the foreigner too shall be welcomed. If they have joined themselves to the Lord, Isaiah says, They are not to be excluded from the Lord's house, for my house, verse 7, shall be called house of prayer for all peoples. And if that sounds at all familiar, Jesus quotes that very verse 
when he enters in that, that final Passover week, when he enters into the table, right, turns over the money tables and the rest, uh, into the temple and turns over those tables, he quotes this passage right here. In other words, Isaiah is helping Israel see that God's plans were larger than Israel. God's plan is indeed global in scope. That's how this book three opens, with God's global plan. And notice it's also how it closes. So just jump all the way to chapter 66. Go all the way to Isaiah 66. Keep those fingers moving. Isaiah 66. Looked at verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, and the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. All right, stop right there and just notice how these verses really parallel what we just read a moment ago in 56, 3 through 8. Really in powerful and an evocative language where we read here of a time when, when the nations shall come and see, God says, my glory, verse 18. And then those who come and see and receive are then sent out to then go and declare that glory among the nations. To those far away, we read, who have not heard or seen my glory, verses 19 and 20. So God's plan is for a global people that glorify him. That's what God is about. You're going to hear echoes of this, right, in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. It's what we read about in the book of Acts as the gospel goes to the very ends of the earth. And that has always been God's plan, right, because God is a missionary God. Which means if you are a Christian here this morning, this kind of passion for the nations is a passion that also ought to mark your own life. It's what we as a congregation should increasingly be caring about. God's passion to see his glory declared among the nations. So it's why as a church, one of the things we want to see as your elders is that as our budget grows, proportionally the amount of money we give to gospel work right around the globe, we want to see that grow proportionately larger as our own budget grows. It's why in addition to work in Medellin and in Prague and in Durban, some of which Wes prayed about even this morning, we now also support work in Gothenburg, Sweden, in Lucknow, India, in Bangkok, Thailand, and in Dubai. Places where few have often heard the gospel, even fewer have believed the gospel. It's why we're increasingly seeking within our own congregation to train up those amongst us who want to go to unreached people groups and unreached language groups. It's why we have the pastoral residency, right? Because if you're going to go and you are going to proclaim the gospel and make disciples, you're making disciples who are then gathered into churches, who then raise up leaders to go make disciples and see this propagated, right? This is where residency is helpful. Or organizations like Radius, as we train and raise up people to send them there to get cross-cultural uh, cross training, 
It's why we pray for gospel work, as I noted a moment ago, is wested in the pastoral prayer. It's why we as individuals should be giving or going or doing both those things. And if not to the nations, if we're not going, well then to take opportunities of the nations that come to us, that come right on our doorstep here at the university. Right, the programs like iFriend that abound, opportunities to meet and to share with internationals. Right? I could keep going, but part of what I want you to see right here in book three is that we are to be global Christians right, with global vision because our God here is a global God, a God about the nations. And notice the goal of this work, the goal of missions The goal of missions, Isaiah says, it's not more wells, it's not clean water, it's not sustainable agriculture. The goal of missions is not finally clothing or business skills or basic health care. All those are good things, don't get me wrong. They're fine things. They're things that can accompany gospel work. Sometimes they provide a kind of platform for gospel work, but such things are never meant to replace gospel work. They're no substitute for gospel work. Did you notice the expression that keeps repeating itself in these two verses, 68, 18, and 19? That expression three times, my glory, my glory, right? The goal of missions are people who declare and delight in God's glory, who worship and bear witness to this God of glory. You know, it's been said that missions exist because worship doesn't. Those who need to gather and to proclaim God's praises. You know, if you've tasted of the worship of Jesus, right, you should want others to experience that very same joy. Friends, that shouldn't just be true of those interested in missions. That should be true of all Christians. Living faithfully while we wait patiently means we ought to be those concerned of sharing this gospel message urgently and and passionately and joyfully with others For God's plan, Isaiah is helping us see from the very beginning, all the way back to Genesis if we want even, is to have a global people that glorifies him. That's God's plan. But secondly, I want us to note God's precepts, that we're to obey God's precepts. That's also part of what Isaiah is going to help us see in order, what does it look like to live faithfully while we wait patiently, obey his precepts. And we can sometimes bristle at that word obedience, right? Obedience, it's kind of a stifling word. It's a constraining word. Obedience tends to impinge on our own notions of of freedom. It implies obedience does. There's someone else we have to answer to. It implies there's someone else we're accountable to. But friends, you could say obedience is God's love language. 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God, that we obey his commands. To love God is to obey God. So if you flip all the way back to Isaiah 56, verse 1, just look back there for a moment. Isaiah 56, 1. Isaiah writes, keep justice, do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hands from doing any evil. Just stop right there at verse 2. So you may remember it was this lack of justice all the way back in chapter 1 
this lack of justice, especially for the oppressed, right, for the widowed and for the orphaned, that lack of justice is what got Israel into this great mess. It's part of what let Israel into her own exile because she wouldn't keep justice. Israel wouldn't pursue righteousness. In other words, she wouldn't pursue what it looked like to live rightly before God. You know, for Israel, religion had become divorced of any social responsibility. Religion had become divorced. It had just become a kind of ritual, no longer about any kind of right living. You know, it's the very kind of thing Jesus, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, it's the very kind of thing Jesus goes after in that sermon. It's the notion that I I can profess all I want, love for God with my lips, and yet simultaneously just keep walking sinfully in my own life. And this right living is highlighted, Isaiah says, by keeping the Sabbath, verse 2. And that theme, if you read these 11 chapters, the Sabbath comes up repeatedly. It actually leads the section. It actually ends in chapter 66 as well. And it's in part because the Sabbath was meant as physical rest, not just for masters, but for servants, but for the resident foreigners among them, for those most prone to exploitation and abuse. The Sabbath was in part rest for them. And yet even stepping back, the Sabbath itself, it was not an end in itself, but it was a sign that actually all of life, the Sabbath was a sign that all of life was meant to be lived in submission to God, which is why to keep the Sabbath is equated in verse 2 with not doing any evil. Not doing any evil. Look forward with me to chapter 58, verse 3 as well. 58, 3, what does it look like to obey God's precepts? Well, here he's going to be dealing with fasting. Chapter 58, verse 3. And the people are going to have some complaints. 58, 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Referring to God. God not see it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, God says, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with the wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself. It is to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him. Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked and cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Stop there in verse 7. So you see what Isaiah is doing. Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God, is rebuking Israel for all her false professions of piety. And God's saying, listen, all your fasts, right? He'll, he'll do the same later with the Sabbath. You can do these things, right? But they're, when they're done with a wrong heart, right? you can't manipulate me with them. I'm not going to be mocked by such fasts, right? He's going to go on to say that fasting, genuine, true fasting, what God really desires, the fast he desires, it's not even fundamentally about food, but right, those that what? Cease to do wickedness. And instead, what do they do? They feed the hungry. They house the poor. The poor. They, they stop ignoring the oppressed among them. It's, it's much of what James highlights, James 1. Right? What is pure and undefiled religion? 
but this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see, Israel had become experts at keeping the letter of the law while entirely missing the heart and the spirit of the law. They're a reminder that sometimes the gospel calls us out of religion as much as it calls us out of irreligion. Right? We can misuse it. We can abuse it. And God's calling his people back to true obedience. Not because their obedience saves them, but because their obedience is the right response to those that have been saved. Those who have been delivered from their captivity ought to respond in obedience. Right? We're not saved by our obedience, but we are saved for obedience. And Isaiah is helping us see how much of our own relationship with God is going to be seen and evidenced in how we relate to others around us. He's helping us see, Isaiah, is that if we profess great love and if we profess great devotion to God while also disregarding our brother and sister and looking past them, then he's saying it's not in fact God you love. Friends, I wonder this morning if you viewed your own relationship with God and if you measured your relationship with God on the basis of how you loved and served others, what might that say about you? Would it reveal that all is well and healthy or might it reveal that something is fundamentally broken? Something's misunderstood. And friends, what's the heart posture? Isaiah's trying to get a look at the heart. Well, what is that heart posture that remains obedient to God? Look forward, chapter 66, verse one. Jump up to 66.1. I told you, you need those fingers to keep moving. 66 verse 1. What is this heart posture Isaiah wants to get at that remains obedient to God? Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? Or what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Stop right there. Verses 1 and 2 remind us, and if, we, if we've never been taught, are teaching us that God doesn't need our worship to complete him or to fill something that is lacking in him. He doesn't need the work of our hands to help him. He's trying to say to Israel, I don't need finally this temple. It's, it's not filling me. The work of your hands isn't completing me. God knows how quickly we can turn love into legalism and we turn worship and we make it all about human work. He says the fundamental heart posture of one obedient to him is a heart posture of humility and contrition and a trembling at God's word. You know, he's going to say the same thing in 5715. You don't have to turn there, but this is what it says. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. So notice this, the mark of genuine godliness in the scriptures, it's not wealth, it's not power, it's not victory, it's not popularity. 
When you read the Bible, you often discover the godly are not, in fact, winners in this world. It's not how they come out. They won't play by the world's rules, and so we shouldn't expect them to be winners. Instead, the mark of genuine godliness is humility. It is contrition. It is penitence. And it is, as Isaiah says, a trembling at God's word. Friend, when was the last time you picked up God's word, you read it, and you trembled before it? Because this is God speaking to you, revealing himself to you, imploring you to hear him and heed him and listen to him. This kind of contrition and humility possesses a deep and an abiding awareness of sin, a kind of godly sorrow that leads to repentance over sin. You know, Jesus reminds us, right, in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, especially those who mourn their sin, for what they will be comforted. Whereas the wicked, as we read, they are not comforted, for the wicked don't weep. The wicked don't mourn their sin. Oh, Christian, when was the last time you wept over your sin? When was the last time you mourned over your sin? Not when you felt the consequences of sin, but just when you mourned the presence of sin in your own life. Friend, that's the heart posture of one who genuinely loves and genuinely obeys God. They are intimate and familiar with their sins. But Israel was not. And they wouldn't have it. So look back to chapter 59. You know, I noted, even as you turn, Isaiah is often cyclical. And so it's one of the reasons we're going back and forth, because he's repeating the themes. And I spared you 11 chapters of breakdown, where there's this great chiasm. Just, it's, it's for your benefit, probably, that I spared this to you. But it does mean we have to flip around. So look back with me to chapter 59. Chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. We read there, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Friends, stop there. Why does God seem far away? Israel. For Israel, it's a lot easier to blame God. They're blaming God. It's a lot easier to do that than to go ahead and just look in the mirror. But Isaiah puts the blame right at their feet. They won't obey God because they are obstinate and they sin. And those sins, Isaiah says, has separated them from their God. Our sins separate us from God. It's what he's going to go on to confess in chapter 64. I'll just read it, chapter 64, verses 5 and 6. Behold, you, God, were angry. We sinned. And in our sins, we have been long. That's the ESV's way of saying we've sinned for a long time. Shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Right? The sum total of our righteous deeds, Isaiah says, polluted garments, or as you know the NIV maybe, filthy rags, that's what our righteous deeds amount to. The logic of the Bible is that there is no one who does good because there is no one who is good. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners, as it's said. Right? None of us can finally obey God rightly and fully and faithfully. Our sins explain why 
this world is broken. And not only that, but why our own relationship with God Himself is broken. Which is why Isaiah cries out, shall we be saved? Is God finally done with us? He's restored us. We've persisted in our sins. Will He leave us? Is He going to wipe His hands of us? Is there a way back to God? And friends, thirdly, that brings us to God's provision. That we must trust His provision. Thirdly, we must trust His provision. Look forward with me to chapter 59, verse 14. Chapter 59, verse 14. We read, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered, or you can also translate that was appalled, that there was no one to intercede. And here's the turning point right here. No one to intercede, appalled at all the sin. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Pause there. Isaiah is helping us see, right? We can't save ourselves. There was no one to come to anybody's defense, which is why since we can't save ourselves, God stepped in to save. He saved. Notice how the provision of salvation comes. And notice how it comes as as Isaiah moves on through a person. 59 verse 20. The conclusion of this section, and a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Who is this redeemer? Who is this one to come? Who is this provision of salvation? Look to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. Verses 1 to 3. In many ways, these verses, 1 to 3, are really the climactic center of this whole third book. Who is this redeemer? Who is this person who brings salvation? 61 verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Friends, all of God's promises are hinging right here, and they are turning on this person. This person we read who what? Who possesses the spirit of the Lord. And who in Isaiah have we seen? Who is this one who possesses the spirit of the Lord? You remember Isaiah 11? The spirit of the Lord rests on God's promised king, the one who will come and rule over his people. 
And then in Isaiah 42, the Spirit of the Lord rests on the servant of the Lord, the one who died for the sins of his people. And yet here we read in Isaiah 61 that the Spirit of the Lord rests on the coming conqueror who is going to finally deliver God's people. And friends, who is this person? Who is this royal king? Who is this suffering servant? Who is this cosmic conqueror that comes? Well, we read about him earlier in the service. Kristen read of him. Many years later, this Redeemer would come. And there would be a future Sabbath day when this one would stand in God's assembly and take this scroll of Isaiah and open it and read these very words from Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. And he would read these words and then he would stop and he would roll up that scroll. He would look at them and say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and then he would sit down. Friends, that right there, in that moment, jaws hit the floor, right? That was the mic drop moment of all mic drop moments. When Jesus quoted that scripture and spoke and said that it taught of him, and then he sat. He understood that he was this one Isaiah prophesied of. He was this royal king. He was this suffering servant. He was this coming conqueror. And friend, if you've come this morning and you wouldn't identify in any way as a Christian, right? Maybe friends brought you. Maybe you were drug along by family on Thanksgiving. I'm not sure, but I'm grateful you're here. And this is the most important thing you need to hear in this message. And it's that Christianity is not fundamentally a system of rules or moral codes. It's not simply a pattern of ethical behavior that you're called to follow. It's not even a formal doctrine of uh, statements of doctrine, right? Creeds of such that you have to adhere to. Christianity is not finally about what political party you identify with or the social causes you support or whether or not you think COVID lockdowns are right. Lots of discussions about that. That's not what Christianity is about. At the heart of Christianity, is this person Jesus Christ. At the heart of Christianity is him. If you are ever going to understand Christianity, you have to come to terms with this Jesus of the Gospels. This Jesus that is presented for us already 700 or so years before Christ is even born. Isaiah is speaking of him. And what you do with this Jesus, whether or not you accept him for whom said he is or whether or not you reject him, Recognize that's not just going to affect how you live this life. That's actually going to affect where you're headed in the next life. Isaiah is going to go on in chapters 65 and 66. And I'm not going to turn there now, but you can read about it later. And I'd encourage you to. He's going to go on. He's going to lay out two separate paths with two very different destinies. And one of those paths will lead to life and one will lead to death. One will lead to singing and one will lead to weeping. One will lead to blessing and one will lead to cursing where Isaiah says their worm shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched. And Jesus will grab that and he will quote it himself and say this is what will come of the one who rejects me. Friends, this is the difference between being saved and being lost. It's the difference between heaven and hell. And the demarcation line is not ethnic, it's not political, it's personal, and it's confessional, and it all centers on what you do with this Jesus. Will you trust him? 
the one whom God sent to live that life of justice and righteousness. Isaiah's been talking about, but none of us live. You and I can't live that life. This Jesus lived that life. And then he died the death. You and I deserve to die in our sins. And then he rose from the grave, conquering death, just like Isaiah said he would in Isaiah 53, so that all who turn to him and repent of sin and trust in this Jesus, they can be saved. My friend, Jesus Christ is God's provision for salvation. And there is not another provision. There's not another way. Peter would say, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, thus far Isaiah has helped us see that in order to live faithfully while we wait patiently, yeah, we got to know God's plan. We're called to obey his precepts, which we can't finally do, not fully, not appropriately, not completely, which is why we're called then to trust his provision, this provision of a person in Christ. And now fourthly, we're called to hope in God's promises. We're called to hope in God's promises. For while Isaiah speaks to Israel's return from exile and speaks to being resettled in the land, Isaiah's prophecies also at the same time, they look beyond that day. And they look to an even greater day out in the future. So look at me at chapter 60. Go back to chapter 60, verse 1. Chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations, can't you see it keep coming back? Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, and your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, young camels of Midian and Ephath, and those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news the praises of the Lord. Stop there in verse 6. So right here, Isaiah is looking beyond a time, time of the exiles, looking beyond that time to, to a time when God's light would shine in the darkness, though the world wouldn't understand it. When the true light, which gives life to every man, will come into the world. He's speaking of that time, that time we read in John 1. And to this light the nations come, to this light, royal and wise ones, bearing the wealth of the nations. And what is that wealth? Gold and frankincense. Friends, that, does that remind you of anything in the Gospels? Does that remind you of when the Magi come to Jesus, bearing the wealth of the nations of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and laying it at his feet? And friends, yet Isaiah's prophecies, they look to that day, and they still look yet beyond that day. Chapter 60 Verse 19, chapter 60, verse 19. A day when the sun shall be no more, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, 
and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. So right here we're transported into another realm, into another horizon, and really a heavenly horizon, which later Isaiah will refer to in 65, the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we're getting glimpses of here. What Revelation 21 refers to, right, is the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. And before this city, the power of human kingdoms will fail, and the kings of the earth will come, and they will amass their wealth only to lay it down at the feet of King Jesus. A day when all we read God's people will what? They will be righteous and they shall possess the land forever. My Christian friend, I don't know what you've been doing for the last few days, but I know a lot of people have been shopping. All right, it's Black Friday, it's Cyber Monday, but I hope you're beginning to see that there is no Black Friday deal, there is no Cyber Monday deal tomorrow, tomorrow that possibly can compare to this hope that is held out for us in Isaiah, right? There's no Thanksgiving feast like the final feast that God has prepared for his people on this day. Look to Isaiah 62, 2. Turn with me there, 62, verse 2. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name, that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. What a turn of events. To be sinful, to be spies, cut off, forsaken, and yet now, a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. My Christian friend, life is filled with trials. You know, life's like that proverbial rose, right? Beautiful, and yet you grab it, and it cuts, and it bleeds. We bleed in this life, right? We suffer in this life, and yet in this life we wait and we hope because there will come a day, as we're seeing here, when God will take his people as his bride, and the waiting will be over, and that wait, wedding day that day, we've sort of been engaged in this period, and yet that wedding day will be complete, and on that day will be given, as Isaiah says, a new name. And on that day, our God will receive us, and with eyes beaming, we read that not only does he receive us, he rejoices over us. Over and over, we in the Bible are called to rejoice in the Lord. But here we read of a day when God will fully rejoice in us, in having us, in wedding us. 
not because we're inherently beautiful, but because God has made us to be beautiful. Isaiah 61.10, For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, just as a bride on her wedding day. Well, friend, I don't know how you came in these doors, but if life, like if you're just on the bottom of the shoe of this life, so to speak, trampled down regularly by this life, feeling unloved, I don't know, forgotten, discouraged, just consider for a moment this future. And the best way to spend some of your afternoon is to read over these chapters and ponder this future God's hold out to his people. Consider what it would be like just to have this God and to have this God delight in you, to rejoice in you, to have this God sing over you because he has saved you and redeemed you. You know, there's no status, there's no person, there's no achievement, there's no circumstance in life that can compare with having the God of the universe rejoice over you. To be the object of this God's attention, to be the object of his affection, to be the object of his passions, nothing can compare with that. You know, if you're young here this morning, you're going to have a hard time with this one. You know, I became a Christian as a teenager, and I remember reading some of these things and like, yeah, but I got the rest of life before me. Like, I got plans. I got hopes. I, I got some things, exciting things in store. And yet, life does have a way of beating that out of you. So, you know, if you're young and struggling to understand why this is really good news, you know, the world, yeah, it will bombard you, and it will tell you that if you can just achieve in academics, or if you can just succeed in sport, if you can excel in whatever that hobby it is you have, if you can have this relationship or, or know that kind of popularity, you're tempted to believe then all will be well, like you'll inherit the world, so to speak. But you won't, and it won't happen, because we weren't made for this world. You know, that's not just what the young among us need to know. It's what the older among us need to remember, right? There's no success. There's no accomplishment. There's no marriage. There's no children. There are no grandchildren. There's no career. There's no promotion. There's no victory. There's no storming the field, right, that compares with this kind of celebration when God rejoices eternally in his people. My Christian friend, that is God's heart in Christ toward you, his heart rejoices in you. It's how significant his people are to him. They bear his name. God's interest in them is not casual. It's not occasional. Right? We're seeing it is focused. It is determined. It is full of joy and full of love. 62.11 Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Friends, the glory we long for, it is a glory that is not found in a building it's not found in bricks and mortar. It's not found in a city finally with walls. Isaiah is helping us see that glory we long for. It is to be found in a people 
a holy people, redeemed, sought out, and not forsaken. God with his people and they with him forever. That is the vision Isaiah leaves us with. It is a vision as grand as God is himself. And friends, that really brings us to the end of Isaiah's prophecy. You know, like the exiles of Isaiah's own day, we too, like them, are those who look back to Calvary. We look back to that suffering servant who died for us. And yet we look forward with anticipation to that day when this cosmic conqueror will come back for us and usher in this reality, this new heavens and this new earth. We live in these last days, in this last great era of history. You live it, I live in it. The last great era of history. Our Savior has come. His banner Raised before the nations, Isaiah says. The gospel goes out and is proclaimed, and the gates to that heavenly city still remain open, and that final great pilgrimage has begun. The question is will this vision of Isaiah's, will that be your vision? Will this heavenly city, this glorious city, friends, will that be your city? Will that be your destiny? Let's pray. Oh God, we confess we come to texts like this and we want to read them and stop and say nothing other than to wonder at them, to ponder them. We confess we doubt sometimes whether these things are true. No doubt Israel would have wondered if such things could possibly be true, if such promises could truly come to pass, and yet, Lord, you bring them to pass. We're further along, and we have seen much of what you have done, and yet we long and we look forward to that day when you will complete all of your good purposes and bring us to that heavenly city. And we long for that city. Keep our eyes fixed upon those hopes, the world to come, not merely the world we inhabit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.